Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 118 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, I'll be interviewing David X. Cohen. He was the head writer for the popular science fiction cartoon Futurama, which he co-developed with Matt Groening, creator of The Simpsons. Futurama and The Simpsons are both full of math and science jokes, which are explored in great detail in the new book, The Simpsons and Their Mathematical Secrets, by Simon Singh. Recently, David and Simon have been traveling around together talking about the book and about some of the math and science in Futurama, and I'm really excited to talk about some of that stuff today with David. So now, here's our interview with David X. Cohen. All right, so we're here with David X. Cohen. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. All right, so you co-developed Futurama along with Matt Groening, and you guys wrote the pilot script together. So first of all, why don't you just tell us a bit about how that came about and how much of the larger story had you worked out at that point? Well, the origin of Futurama is that I was a writer at The Simpsons for about uh, five years, and about four years into that, Rumors started going around that Matt Groening was working on this secret project, a secret science fiction project. And I was very interested, of, of course, being uh, the sci-fi science nerd on The Simpsons writing staff. There were many, many other nerds on the staff, <laughs> but uh, I was the one specializing in science and sci-fi. And uh, so I was very excited when Matt came to me and asked if I wanted to collaborate with him on that. And we started talking just in our spare time because we were both working on The Simpsons, but just on weekends and evenings about uh, what we might do in Futurama. And a lot of it was just, you know, what books do we like? What movies do we like? What ideas can we steal <laughs> or borrow? Um, and uh, we, this went on for a long time, probably about a year, which was way too much time in retrospect. And when we finally went into uh, the Fox Network to try to sell the show, we realized, oh, we, we have too much stuff with us, and the meeting went on for about two hours, and I think they finally said, all right, that's enough. We'll take the show if you just shut up. Already. <laughs> so uh, we were we were over-prepared. But uh, uh, that said, even even with all the preparation we had done, I think it ended up being a learning experience, and uh, really by doing it is how we learned how to do it. So when you say you were the resident sci-fi nerd, sort of what were your sci-fi nerd qualifications at that point? Well, really, I guess I should say I was mainly a science nerd. Now, I'm a sci-fi nerd in the, in the sense that I like to read science fiction, but uh, I'm a science nerd in the sense that I really was almost a scientist. I come from a family of scientists. I had uh, two biologists as my parents, and my big rebellion, <laughs> if you can call it that, was to go into physics and computer science instead. So got my undergraduate degree in physics. I decided to go study computer science after that at UC Berkeley. and. Uh, kind of uh, pooped out of there <laughs> halfway through and ended up with a master's degree instead of a PhD and started uh, writing comedy spec scripts. So it was, it was a torturous, circuitous route to comedy writing, but through lots of real science. Um, and uh, so I had the science side pretty well cornered uh, at The Simpsons until I should say Ken Keeler showed up, who was another writer on The Simpsons and later Futurama. He actually has a PhD in uh, applied math, so his, his credentials are actually a little better than mine, but he showed up a little too late to get in on the the development stage of Futurama, lucky for me. <laughs> it's a, You know, I actually, I come from a family of scientists as well, and my dad's a physicist, and he actually got into physics because he wanted to write science fiction, and he thought that would be a good background for a science fiction writer. Um, did your interest in science fiction play any role when you deciding to go into physics? Uh, huh. That's a good question. I never really thought about that. Um, probably I bet it did, but you're, 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 you may have just planted that idea. <laughs> so, so as of this minute, I'm going to say, yes, that's, I think that's a really interesting thought because, um, it is obviously, especially for physics, inspiring to read about space travel and intelligent stars and <laughs> things like that. It makes you curious. So, uh, yeah, I think I think so, but uh, I I credit you with the idea that with planting the seed. <laughs> um, all right, so let's get back to the 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 Futurama pilot. Uh, you you said you worked out way too much of it when you went into Fox. Like, how much of the show as we know it had you worked out when you went into that in, initial meeting? Well, we had 
a huge number of characters. We had so many characters that some of them we did not even get to during the seven or eight seasons of the show. (laughs) Um, So Matt had a couple of them already, even when he asked me to join him. He had Fry and Leela and uh, Zap Brannigan and Kiff already for our Futurama fans out there. We then created Bender and Zoidberg and most of the other ones. But we kept going. We had uh, Nibbler and we even invented this character called Pocket Pal, who was this tiny little robot. And the idea was he was about six inches high and he was going to ride around in Fry's pocket and explain the world of the future to Fry because we thought, oh, people are going to be so confused that he's going to need this guide to show him around. And that's one of those things that I would put in the category of lessons we learned, which is that people really don't want to lecture about how the future works. They just want to see what's happening. (laughs) And uh, we rapidly stopped explaining things to Fry, even though he was our man in the future from our time who was learning things. We realized that 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 wasn't too necessary. And we just started thinking of him as another character who was just sort of a a dumb guy rather than someone who knew nothing about the future. Um, So we never needed this little guide. And actually, just as a throwaway joke, in a literal sense, a throwaway joke, we showed the uh, professor in a very late episode tossing little robots in the garbage and blowing them up like firecrackers. And one of them was pocket. <laughs> um, all right. So, you know, this is mostly a show where we interview science fiction authors and talk about science fi- fiction books. And so I'm just kind of curious, which books and pr- science fiction books in particular, do you think influence the development of Futurama? Um, can I count uh, other media besides books as well? Or like, like TV shows? Uh, I was kind of curious specifically about books. If, if you Okay, I'll talk about books um, uh, as well. Um, but obviously, Star Trek is a huge influence as the straight line sort of for Futurama. But books wise, I mean, there's there's not that much comedy science fiction that, that at least that I've read and that I'm aware of. I'm sure your listeners will uh, fill me in <laughs> what I'm ignorant of. But, uh, but there's a little bit that I knew. And uh, when I was a kid, actually... I used to find books lying around my house because my mom was a voracious science fiction reader. So actually, that's where I I got my love of science fiction. And some of the uh, books I found lying around when I was a kid were these Stanislaw Lem books, like the Star Diaries and uh, Tales of Perks the Pilot. And I think uh, Mortal Engines, I think is the name of one. And and, uh, these are these really strange, surreal and funny sci-fi short stories that I think did have a big influence on me, especially as far as the idea that robots could be characters. (laughs) So Bender being sort of the most human character on Futurama, I think does owe a little bit to Stanislaw Lem. I particularly remember this one story that had a huge influence on me that I'm I'm trying to remember the name of. I I guess I should have prepared for this interview (laughs) probably, probably, but uh, he had a story about this planet that was uh, entirely inhabited by robots and these humans crash land on it and the murderous robots are out to kill all the humans and the humans have to pretend to be robots to survive and of course it it turns out ultimately, a spoiler alert here it, it turns out that everybody on the planet are humans who crash landed and are disguising <laughs> themselves as robots and uh, hiding out in desperation from each other so that directly influenced Futurama um, that idea, we did an episode um, somewhat similar to that, even um, and uh, minus the uh, minus the robots being in humans in disguise. So we took away the good part. <laughs> we we kept the rest. Of um, so Stanislaw M definitely a big influence on Futurama. Um, as far as uh, let's see, what else? Kurt Vonnegut, I guess I would say uh, uh, I read a lot of Kurt Vonnegut. Uh, in uh, my college graduate school days. And uh, so I put him sort of in the category of funny sci-fi writer, writers who influenced me, but, but that's about it really for stuff I read that was in that category. Um, most of the stuff I like is, you know, straight science fiction. And, and, and I should say, as far as the site, can I just veer off on a tangent here yeah, and yeah, just talk sure. about uh, the, the way we do sci-fi in Futurama because uh this kind of naturally leads into that, which is, is, is a funny sci-fi show. Is it making fun of science fiction or is it real science fiction with jokes in it? And we weren't really that sure ourselves when we were developing the show. Um, again, because I think there isn't a lot of, uh, there aren't a lot of comedy sci-fi movies and TV shows. There are a few. Um, 
but we didn't have a lot of models to decide what we like best. So we started just kind of fooling around, but we did decide pretty quickly, all right, we're not going to have, we're not going to do the real goofy version where it's like spaceships that look like uh, flying bicycles or whatever. I mean, we're going to, we're going to make it look a little more sci-fi and cool because we thought those kind of visual jokes would wear thin if you had to see it if you had to see a, a, a dumb looking ship 1000 times it wouldn't be funny the 832nd <laughs> time so so we decided kind of visually not to make it too dumb for lack of a better word um at the beginning but as far as the tone are we making fun of sci-fi or or is it real sci-fi that we really were unsure of and we weren't sure if people would watch if it was more serious with the sci-fi and this was definitely a, a feedback loop, which is very slow in animation, where we would do a show, uh, it would take a year to make, and then we would read comments on the internet about it and uh, start writing a new show, and that's on a year later. So it's like a two-year feedback loop. But um, we noticed in, in, in the course of that loop that the fans were responding really well to the episodes that had more sci-fi in them. And gradually over the course of the series if you if you watch it all again which i encourage everyone to do go out rush out and uh, <laughs> buy all the dvds and watch them all again <laughs> or just watch them on netflix um you'll see we do go for more serious sci-fi stories as it goes along and the thing that was very surprising to me and the other writers i think was that a lot of those i believe ended up being our funnier episodes as well and that's that's what we didn't know we could do at first just to do a, a story which was a, a real sci-fi story, but also be a good comedy story or a good touching story. And I think the reason it worked uh, is that having this real grand and tense melodramatic background for the sci-fi story sort of sets up this this bubble of tension that you can pop with the jokes. <laughs> and the jokes actually end up playing better against that real melodramatic space opera. So we found to my surprise that we could do both of those things. And those where we did manage to do good sci-fi story, a good touching story and something that was funny at the same time. Those were, those are our best ones, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so it says online that when you were trying to get this show going, that Fox was particularly disturbed by the concept of suicide booths, Dr. Zoidberg and Bender's antisocial behavior. Could you just talk about um, what sort of pushback you got on putting that kind of weird science fictional stuff into the show? Yeah, certainly at the very beginning of the show, we were especially nervous about sticking sci-fi into this sci-fi show <laughs> because of uh, network concerns from Fox Network. And uh, the the famous quote in my mind is when we handed in the pilot or maybe the first couple of scripts, they said, hey, we thought this was supposed to be like The Simpsons. And Matt Groening said, it is like The Simpsons. It's new and original. <laughs> so, um, But they were a little surprised. I think they thought it was going to be a little more of like a family flying around on a sofa in space <laughs> it was but but what we were doing is trying to make it as different from the simpsons as we could because we didn't want to be accused of ripping off the simpsons matt especially didn't want to be accused of being short of ideas and ripping off his own show so um we wanted to put more sci-fi in and different kinds of characters you know young adults instead of parents and kids that kind of thing um so we got a, a lot of notes in the beginning bender's too mean uh you're going to a different planet every week. We want to know what Earth is like. So we t definitely toned it down. The the uh, the biggest example being the third episode of the series. It's called um, I Roommate. And that was it, that was entirely conceived to placate the network. And the idea was Fry and Bender are going to become roommates. They're going to look for an apartment together. And we're going to find out how just how people live in the future. And it's a perfectly good episode. It's fine. Um, I like it. Um, but their reaction to that was basically, we hate this too. So <laughs> we don't know what to do. <laughs> we, now we have no idea what to do. And we're just going to do whatever we can think of. So it, there was a lot of feeling our way the first season, though, as I said. And uh, gradually with this long feedback, I do think uh, we learned what to do. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess some of this stuff was too much for executives. Was that true? I mean, how did it go over with the general public? Did the general public react negatively to the suicide booths or any of that kind of stuff? No, I, people don't care about that kind of stuff at all. You know, um, if they if if people's little kids are watching the show, they might be slightly outraged as defensive parents. But that's the problem was that they let their kid watch this PG-13 rated show in the first place. So 
you know, we, they knew what was coming. Basically the, the, I would say the tone is in the ballpark of material you'd be exposed to on the Simpsons in terms of sex and violence and stuff. So, um, I don't think there was much outrage at all over suicide booths, especially since the character who really wanted to commit suicide was a machine (laughs) in the bender. Um, the idea that Bender was too mean, I would say, was the the one note that particularly ended up being unapplicable. Is that a word? Unapplicable? Uh, in, inapplicable? Uh, inapplicable. Uh, because Bender, ultimately, although he seems mean, he he uh, he does stick with his friends. And uh, uh, I think people, people took to Bender, obviously, as one of our more popular characters. So... Uh, that turned out to be a non-issue. So I don't know. We probably lost a few viewers by flying to other planets, but people who don't like sci-fi are not going to watch <laughs> the show. That's how it is. And hopefully we got a few viewers who weren't expecting to see to see as much sci-fi. So hope, perhaps it canceled out in the long run. How about when you have a political kind of characters like Richard Nixon or Al Gore? Do you ever get any sort of political uh, people being unhappy about that? Yes, we do. <laughs> <laughs> Richard Nixon is a great example. Um, for those uh, listening who don't watch Futurama, Richard Nixon's head, which is preserved in a jar of liquid, as many famous people's heads are in the future, um, Richard Nixon's head is president of the world in the future. And the reason we did that basically is because we thought, oh, Richard Nixon is a great cartoon character in real life. <laughs> and it makes an easy transition to the world of cartoons. Um, and I remember Matt Groening saying, if you had told me in the 70s that I was going to be able to make fun of Richard Nixon 30 years later, I would have been so happy. <laughs> so it was just a, his long, long time dream to continue kicking around Richard Nixon. So um, we made Richard Nixon the head of the world. And it was one of the things we thought would be probably a quick joke and we'd do it once or twice, but it ended up being a recurring thing because, as I said, he's pretty much a cartoon character to begin with. And early on in the show, we actually got a letter or or the network got a letter from the Richard Nixon library or the Richard Nixon estate. I don't remember which one saying they, they weren't pleased with his portrayal and uh, would we consider not doing it and so on. Now, there's no legal reason we, we couldn't do it because presidents are fair game as public figures with seems to be well established in US law but um uh we didn't really stop however um because we liked it but the strange thing is uh we didn't really really do this consciously but Nixon became a little less evil I think as it went along and a little more of just a practical tyrant who had to put up with a lot of of uh of uh difficult uh, aliens and annoying people so Perhaps that helped or perhaps they just got used to it. But a few years later, we got another letter from the Nixon Library saying, can we provide some materials because they're going to do a an exhibit about Nixon in popular culture and they'd like to include future oh, wow. <laughs> They came around for whatever reason. I, I, I don't know exactly what, but uh, they came around. Al Gore being a little bit on the other end of the spectrum. Um, uh, mostly, mostly positive feedback, obviously. Each person has their own reaction. I think our audience probably leans a little bit in the direction of pro-science and probably anti-putting uh, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So it wasn't that controversial again, I would say. And um, uh, he was amazing. It was it was really surprising, actually, that he agreed to be on the show the first time because he was still the sitting vice president. People may not remember the first time he appeared on the show as the... Uh, head of the uh of us of the super nerd squad that was trying to stop the universe from collapsing so um it was really quite impressive i think he he wanted in a way to improve his public persona and show that he is he had a sense of humor and he did like you know when you're in the room with him personally it's really amazing he's very charismatic and uh very funny guy and I, i was really impressed with his willingness to scream and make a fool of himself so as a result, we invited him back, and he became one of our most frequently recurring side characters in the show. I think he was back four times in the course of the show. Mm-hmm. All right, and so then, you know, a big reason we wanted to get you on the show now specifically is because this book just came out called The Simpsons and Their Mathematical Secrets by Simon Singh, and uh, they interviewed you for that, and you're now going around with Simon Singh talking about the book. Do you want to, want to just tell us a little bit about what you and Simon have been doing together? 
This is a very surreal chapter in the history of The Simpsons and Futurama, this uh, book that Simon Singh wrote. The reason being that when we first started sticking little math jokes in the background of The Simpsons, which is the subject of the book, I guess I should say, um, the, the jokes we were sticking in were really not intended for a mass audience. Um, the reason we, were, we started putting these jokes in is because we had empty space in the background of an animated show, and we thought, oh, you know, we've already written this scene, but we can still stick another joke in the background. There's a blackboard there, or there's an empty space or something. So uh, it's just something you can do on cartoons is stick little things in the background that most people won't notice, and the few people at the time who had good VCRs could freeze the tape and just see what we put there. So me, me having come recently from computer science, put a few math jokes in the background thinking, oh, my old friends will appreciate this. Um, and a few of the other science and math writers did similar things. We really didn't plan for more than about eight people to see these jokes. So uh, enter the internet right around this time, the mid nineties. And we noticed people are discussing these jokes. Um, and that's when I really became aware of this phenomenon with, with the Simpsons and later Futurama, where there's an opportunity to put in jokes that very few people will get. You know, you, you could stick in a joke about Fermat's last theorem, which I did. And very, very few people are going to try this on a calculator and, and, uh, and, and get the joke. Um, but, uh, the people who do are so amazed that you stuck this thing in that it was so obscure and so tailored for them that they're really a fan for life after that. So you might only add 12 fans at a time, but they become the, these hardcore fans. And Futurama, especially, I think, had an audience composed of that kind of fan, fans who were like, I can't believe they made a show for me. So it wasn't the hugest audience, but it was one of the most hardcore, dedicated audiences and an audience that later saved our neck when we were canceled repeatedly. <laughs> they demanded our return. Um, so, so it's been very surreal to me that over the years, more and more people have latched onto these math jokes. And it got to the point that, that this, uh, this well-known science writer, Simon Singh from England wrote this book, the Simpsons and their mathematical secrets that really is entirely about these math jokes that, uh, were for eight people. So it's come to a mass audience now and we've entered a surreal chapter in the history of these shows where, uh, I'm doing interviews about math suddenly that I haven't thought about in <laughs> 20 years. So don't quiz me. Um, going around doing some talks. We were at the, uh, Moog Fest electronic music festival in North Carolina a few months ago. I'm going to be in London at the London science museum in about a week and a half with Simon Singh and, uh, Al Jean, who's the head writer of the Simpsons, uh, talking again about these science and math jokes. And I should say Al Jean was also a math major in college. So there's there's quite a few of us. It's strange there was this locus of math and science people on The Simpsons and later Futurama and possibly by chance at the beginning um, on The Simpsons, but just uh, it worked out. So here, here I am in my new life as a traveling comedy mathematician. Mm -hmm. And are, are there any of those math jokes from Futurama that you're particularly proud of that you want to just give as the sort of example of the kind of things you do in the show? Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the highlight of Futurama math for sure is this thing that's now known as the Futurama theorem. Uh, I'm descending into hyper nerd space now. Um, the, the writer of this, of, uh, the episode was Ken Keeler, who I mentioned earlier, who has a PhD in applied math. And actually, he also has two master's degrees, one in applied math and one in, uh, electrical engineering, I believe. So highly qualified. And he was writing this episode where the idea was the characters are all going to switch brains with this brain switching machine, sort of a standard sci-fi and cartoon idea. And we thought, how can we make this a little more interesting, make it different from versions of this that people have seen before? And we came up with this complication. Okay, if the machine switches two people's brains, it cannot switch those same two people's brains back. It's a one-way brain switching machine. So if Fry and Leela switch brains, and Fry now has Leela's brain, those two characters cannot get back in and correct their brain placement. So we thought, okay, if, you, if a lot of the characters get their brains mixed up with this machine, can they all keep trading brains around in a circle or something until they get their brains back? And we were just trying to make the plot more complicated. But we realized we had accidentally created this math problem. Um, you could think of it as a group theory or a graph theory problem. And we started talking about it, thinking it was, would be obvious. And we thought, no, it's not that clear <laughs> if they can all get their brains back or not. So 
end of the day of discussion came, we, we go home, Ken comes in the next morning with a stack of paper and he said, I've got the proof. <laughs> and he had proven that no matter how mixed up people's brains are, if you bring in two new people who have not, not had their brain switched, then everybody can always get their original brain back, including those two new people. So um, I was very excited about this because you rarely get to see science, let alone math, be the hero of a, of a comedy episode of TV. So uh, I really wanted to feature that in a way that more than we usually do, uh, as uh, usually these things being background jokes that fly by. So we presented the problem. It was the key element of the plot. And at the climactic moment of the episode, we flashed the entire proof of the theorem on screen for about half a second. <laughs> so people who really wanted to see it could see that we had really proven it. So that's the, an example of a theorem that was published in the form of a TV cartoon. So obviously, I am extremely proud of that and all credit to Ken Keeler. Hmm. Well, yeah. And in Simon's book, he points out that Ken proved that if you, as long as you added two extra, two new people, you could always sort everything out. But that in the specific situation presented in the show, that they actually could have sorted it out without adding two new people into the mix. Did you know? Yes. Did you know that at the time, or did you? Well, here, yeah, that it, there is an oddity that they could have sorted themselves out because there. I think there was this side switch of uh, of Zoidberg and Fry, something like that. Uh, the the fans always remember these things better than me, but. Uh, Basically, yeah, we had two characters who, by the nature of the particular switches they had done, could be used as those two um, extra bodies, and it happened to work out. The reason that it ended up being that way is because, obviously, as the script went along, we, we did some rewriting, and originally there were a few more brain switches, and it, it was going to be a little bit more complicated, but you only have 21 and a half minutes to work with in a 30-minute <laughs> show, and we had to simplify things a little bit. and um, at this point, I will admit that we didn't we did not realize that by the time we had cut a couple of switches out that it had gotten into these two separate loops of switches where you, it could be sorted out a little more simply. But uh, that doesn't really affect the outcome. You know, the proof, the proof is still the proof. And we didn't say you couldn't switch them back without using the two extra heroes who came in. We just uh, said you could switch them with them. So for any nitpickers, there you go. I've, I've out nitpicked you. <laughs> All right, cool. Yeah. So and another thing I want to ask you about is, you know, I, I'm best familiar with Simon Singh because he was involved in this giant libel suit that's been going on for years now. I was just wondering, while you've been hanging out with him, have you talked about that or have you been following that situation at all? Uh, I have followed a little bit uh, the situation. It's I'm no expert on it, but I know he wrote a, uh, a book. I think it's called Trick or Treatment. Is that right? I think that's um, right, yeah. About uh, alternative medicine, I think uh, chiropractors particularly, but alternative medicine in general, and laying out the science or lack of science behind it. And, um, you know, I don't think saying that it doesn't have any value, but just saying that many of the claims have no scientific merit. And uh, this led to a giant uh, libel suit in in England or in the UK and uh, ultimately, after years of just crushing uh, legal work and court appearances and just just uh, him being ground down, he ultimately won the case. He defended himself successfully by showing that he was citing actual science. And uh, I think the result of this is there's uh, uh, this became such a big thing in England that there's reform of the libel laws there. So. Uh, he did become a, a major figure there in a way he didn't want to <laughs> to to be known. But uh, uh, hopefully it's a victory for science. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, all right. So uh, looking over the list of episodes, I mean, you're credited as the sort of the, the head writer for the whole show. But there are, in addition to the pilot, there are four other full episodes that you're credited as the writer on. And then you had two sort of short bits in the Anthology of Interest episodes. Could you just talk a little bit about why you um, wrote those, wrote the actual scripts for those particular episodes? Yeah, the for, let me say a little bit about the writing credit on these episodes on The Simpsons and Futurama and many other sitcoms, almost all American sitcoms. The thing I the thing I always tell people is never give the credited writer too much credit uh, or too much blame <laughs> <laughs> because these are real group efforts and. It's almost like a, a rotating basis who gets to get their name on <laughs> there as written by 
whoever it says written by actually did go out and write the first draft of the script. But just in the natural process of doing these shows, we then put the script up on a screen in a room full of writers, and we just comb over it for a week, two weeks, looking at every line, every word. Uh, without exaggeration, the majority, usually the great majority of the script changes at that point. Um, the the first draft is really is really just that it's a framework that we work with. So, um, and even the stories themselves are often generated by a group discussion. They, they don't always come from the writer who's credited there. So, uh, and that the same goes for episodes where I am the credited writer. Um, the only difference being that if I propose the subject for an episode, I will then approve it <laughs> pretty much automatically. Whereas if some other writer proposes an idea, I may or may not approve it. Um, so that said, uh, a lot of the reason for why I'm credited on certain episodes is I had an idea for an episode at a time when I happened to have the time to write the script. <laughs> so it's uh, there's, n there's not a, as deep of a reason as you would hope for that these were uh, things that meant so much to me uh, that were so near and dear to my heart, but more that, oh, it's the beginning of the season. I have a little more time before the heavy editing kicks <laughs> in or that kind of thing. Um, the, a couple, I'll, I'll chime in particularly in a couple of the episodes I'm credited on. One is the first Xmas episode we did. Um, in the future, Christmas has become known as Xmas due to the constant use of the shortened form. And we have this evil Santa Claus character who comes and punishes the naughty. And due to a software error, he thinks everybody is naughty. So he basically comes and uh, strafes the earth with machine gun fire from his sleigh <laughs> every every year on Xmas. So I wrote that because this is one of the many stories that Matt Groening and I discussed in the early days before we pitched the show to Fox. So that's that's the reason I wrote that one, is that it was on sitting on the back burner but I had been there for all the original discussions of that, so I figured I might as well write it. Um, and let's see, a couple of the later ones. I wrote one uh, uh, called The Why of Fry that really, again, it was somewhat of a similar thing, filled us in on some backstory about Nibbler and Fry and Nibbler's grand plans for the universe. Nibbler is this creature who appears to be a dumb alien pet, but of course actually it's from this super powerful alien race, um, who are never respected because they're so cute. <laughs> so um, again, that was an idea that we discussed early on. So I felt like I should, I should write that one. So I guess when I said earlier, there was no good reason for me to write these. There was kind of a good reason now that I'm <laughs> going through it. And then uh, a couple of the, the later ones we did for comedy central, those were more of the thing I was saying before. Well, I had time at the very beginning of the process to write the first one when we came back on comedy central and uh, for a, uh, a later season on Comedy Central. Again, at the beginning of the season, I started slowly writing an episode and got done in the middle. So those two were more because it was convenient. Mm -hmm. Well, could you talk a bit about the anthology of interest segments that you wrote? Because even by the standards of Futurama, these are pretty geeky, um, full of obscure reference sort of uh, <laughs> segments. Yes. Uh, the first one was, was the first time Al Gore appeared on the show. I mentioned that. Um, these anthology of interest episodes are ones where we do three mini stories instead of one big story. This is sort of the formula of the Simpsons Halloween episodes. Um, so in Futurama, we have these, these anthology of interest where we say, what if blank? And it's some alternate version of the future that we don't normally show. So, um, we did, uh, one, uh, which I wrote where Fry asked the question, what if I had never come to the future? And, we see that because he was supposed to go into the future and the future changed, um, there's this uh, a, 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 an instability in the space-time continuum and the universe is going to collapse. And we then show Al Gore leading this team of super nerds that must save the universe. Uh, the team consisted of him, Gary Gygax, the creator of Dungeons & Dragons, Nichelle Nichols uh, from the original Star Trek, and... Uh, Deep Blue, the chess-playing computer. Did I forget anybody? Um, I just watched... Stephen Hawking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Stephen Hawking, who also appeared three times on <laughs> Futurama. So, um, so, yeah, this is a, a nerd's delight to work on this episode. I was a big D&D &D player, 
to nobody's surprise when <laughs> I was a teenager. Um, what is it just on a just a basic logistical level? What is it like trying to get all those people together to do the voices for one little ten minute segment? Well, yeah, luckily with the cartoon, you can get these people separately. And with our regular cast, we really we would try to actually get them in the same room, which is pretty unusual for a cartoon because I always thought the dialogue sounded more natural the more we could have the characters really, the actors really talking to each other in the studio. But with these guest stars, it's usually impossible. They often don't live in Los Angeles or even in the United States in some cases. Um, so the logistics for this one were crazy, though, because to get Al Gore, we actually had to fly to Washington, D.C., and record him in the vice presidential residence, which is a secure compound. <laughs> and uh, it was super cool. But uh, we, you know, we had to bring all our recording equipment with us and stuff. Uh, and then for uh, Stephen Hawking, uh, he was actually at Caltech at the time. So conveniently enough, he was nearby. And we thought, oh, maybe, you know, he can just email his dialogue since he uses an electronic voice anyway. But he said, no, he wants to do it the the real way he wants to have the experience of being a guest on the show, which I thought again was an amazing, uh, cool thing to do. So we went to his house he was living in in Pasadena. Again, brought the mics with us, and I got to meet him and talk to him there. So, as a, both a science fiction guy and as a former physics major, that was certainly one of the highlights for me. Mm. Uh, and how about the Raiders of the Lost Arcade? You want to talk about that? Yeah. So the other one of these uh, I wrote, thank you for asking these questions. <laughs> you're hitting, you're hitting things I do like to talk about. These, these particular episodes, these, these, um, anthology of interest ones, I will say I wrote because they're things that I was especially interested in. So I'm gradually again taking back everything I said before about it being chance. These ones, <laughs> they're, they're short. They're short because, so I always had time to, uh, I always had time to write them in between other things I was doing. So these I only did because of the love of the material. Um, so this, the other one of these I wrote was called Raiders of the Lost Arcade. The what if scenario was probably asking, what if life were more like a video game? And here I got to use all of these things from video games of the 1980s, which was my era for video games uh, back in the days when you would actually spend your quarters in the arcade. And I spent many quarters in the arcade at that time. Um, so we had a space invader style invasion of Earth where the spaceships were coming down by moving to the right, then dropping down a notch, moving back to the left, dropping down a notch. Uh, we had our alien Lur commanding this force and giving orders such as move left, drop down, reverse direction. <laughs> uh, and, uh, Cameos from many uh, 80s video games. Um, uh, Qbert, um, Berserk, for any Berserk fans <laughs> out there. Got the humanoid, got the intruder. And many of these things, you know, you can't... We were trying to sort of recreate them without literally using them. And it was a, this was a huge challenge for our sound effects guy to sort of closely rip off all these things and a lot of them there's no clean recording even possible because the sound effects are always overlapping each other and stuff so it was it was actually kind of fun to just sort of recreate these video game uh, sounds and looks and stuff like that can you can you just put any kind of video game character in the cartoon or do you have to worry about any kind of intellectual property sort of stuff with that uh yes <laughs> the the answer to that is we we make designs that are closely based on the thing we the thing we want to parody we then send it off to fox for legal review and they say oh you got to change it a little more and it goes back and forth and back and forth and we end up with something hopefully that gives you the clear idea of what we're talking about but which you could make the argument is distinct so uh it's always a back and forth process and lots of lawyers look at everything hmm. all right cool all right, so we had a couple of listener questions I wanted to ask you. So Justin L. Tabor asks, how did they manage to maintain such great continuity? Um, so I guess, did you have any kind of Bible or anything to keep the facts straight from one episode to the next? Here's something that will make our fans proud. Uh, what we often do is consult these fan wiki pages <laughs> where they have compiled all the appearances of various characters. Um, and... Uh, uh, make sure that we have not done what we're going to do before. <laughs> so uh, a there are many fans who have a better memory of the show than us. Now, I, I will say 
the most useful thing we had were these little cards representing each episode we'd ever done, which were maintained by one of our writers, um, Patrick Verone, who is the only writer other than me who worked on every episode of the show, including all of the DVD movies we did. So he was very into the uh, continuity and the history of the show. And he would, he would keep a little page for each episode we had ever done with a picture and the list of guest stars and the, the air date and all those kind of things. And we would arrange these around the upper edge of the wall, all the way around the room. And while we were pitching out new ideas, we'd always be pointing at things and going like, well, you know, it has to be different from, uh, from episode 408 over, over there. And we'd point to, to, uh, part of the wall and you would get over the years of sitting in the room, you would get used to where everything was and you'd start to be pointing behind you without actually <laughs> looking. And, but it, it was, so that was our, our Bible mainly existed in the form of this wall decoration. Um, and here's how dedicated Patrick was after Comedy Central picked us up. He carefully laid it out. So all uh, at that time, it would have been 98 episodes wrapped very neatly around the the walls. And then when they renewed us again for 26 more episodes, he printed them out and shaved all of them down with razor blades so that then 124 episodes oh, <laughs> could wow. still fit in exactly the same spot. So um, it was like half art project, half uh, half reference project. <laughs> wow. Um, okay. And so then Ted hand asks, should aspiring writers go into math instead of humanities? It couldn't hurt really. Uh, you know, I don't know anyone who wanted to be a writer who was held back by not studying writing. It seems like, um, as long as you keep writing on your own and reading <laughs> that you can become a, you can still become a writer, at least a TV writer. There's very few qualifications to become a TV writer. Yeah, it's amazing the variety of backgrounds. We have people who have PhDs and we have people who uh, kind of made it through high school and became stand-up comedians. So there's there's no one background. And, you know, if you if you like writing and you stick to it, you can become a writer. So you might as well learn something more useful for a fallback <laughs> career while you're at it. Well, how did you end up with so many science people on that show? Did you specifically recruit them somehow or like how did how did that happen you know it's really weird that the simpsons has these sci science people um for futurama it makes sense it's a sci-fi show i purposely hired people who were science sci-fi types um uh and you know it's a sci-fi show but we also try to make a lot of science actual science references and i like to say when we get the science wrong at least we know <laughs> it's wrong we're aware of it when we're writing so we we try not to make too many gross science slip-ups that we're not aware of. So that was intentional. But on The Simpsons, it's it's hard to explain. Um, Al Jean, who I mentioned, was one of the head writers early on in seasons two and three. He was a math major. And his writing partner at that time, Mike Reese, was not a math major, but was had always been very interested in math and puzzles. So they certainly brought a sensibility of uh, math and nerdiness to the show. And as a result, I think they hired some other people who enjoy that kind of stuff too. And the time at the time I was hired, I was hired by David Merkin, who was the head writer then. He was an engineer previously. Um and later I mentioned Ken Keeler showed up with a PhD in uh in uh math uh as well. So I think it's uh I think of it sort of like a crystal where you have this crystal seed of one or two people who like math and then it grows from there because that if that's the sensibility of stuff they like, they hire other people. Mm -hmm with a similar sensibility. So then it, it just gets magnified after that. And luckily then I got to know some of those people and got to use some of them on Futurama. Mm -hmm. I mean, what is basically the process for becoming a writer for a show like Futurama? I mean, so say we have a lot of science fiction fans listening to the show and some of them might want to write for Futurama the next time it gets revived, right? Like what would the process be for that? Uh, it, you know, basically the same as any other sitcom, which is that it's, it's, it's virtually impossible, I should say, first of all. It requires a strange combination of dogged persistence and uh, tremendous good luck. Um, and every writer you talk to, every TV writer you talk to, will have some kind of a good luck story about how they got their first job. Um, uh, once you get your first job, if you do a good job, it becomes more of of a regular career after that, where you, you know, you have credentials and you can apply for the job and you might get it, but to get your first job is the crazy part. It's the same, I'm sure for acting and directing and all these things where things just have to fall into place. In my case, I can tell you that 
I was writing a lot of spec scripts, which are sample scripts when I was at the in graduate school and thinking of leaving. And I wrote sample scripts for Seinfeld and Simpsons and things that were popular at that time and sent them around to everybody I could think of. Now, in my case, I, I knew a couple of people who had become TV writers, which in itself is a huge uh, advantage. And I was able to get them to say, can you pass this on to so-and-so who can pass it on to so-and-so? And, uh, that, so you, you have to work any angle you can to get someone to read your material. So, um, in my case, I was able to get someone I knew to get my material to the head writer of David Letterman's show, um, uh, late night at that time. And they did not hire me, but the, the, I think the head writer liked the material, but David Letterman didn't or something or the other way around, something like that. And, uh, they almost hired me in other words, but they didn't. Uh, and, and then right about that time, Mike Judge created Beavis and Butthead. And they were airing the first episode or two on MTV heavily. And it was a sensation. And he went on David Letterman as a guest. And afterwards, he was talking to the head writer there and said, well, yeah, they ordered a bunch of episodes. And I don't know what to do. I need some really cheap writers <laughs> who are funny right away. And the guy said, oh, I just got this thing. I kind of liked it, but we're not hiring him. What check out this guy. So he handed him my pack of stuff. So it's like one person I didn't know handed my material to another person I didn't know. And Mike Judge hired me. So, um, but everyone ends up with some good luxury, but it's basically based on getting your material out there by just sending it out to a hundred people who don't look at it. And one does. Hmm. Um, okay. And then I also have another listener question I wanted to get to from Chuck floating. He says, Many episodes seem to revolve around some crazy thing invented by Professor Farnsworth, a true plot device. When writing an episode, do the writers come up with the Professor Farnsworth invention first and let the story flow from that, or does the story idea come first and the invention second? Excellent question. Um, I would say in the in the particular case of in the particular case of the inventions, a lot of times we have the invention, but we won't be able to think of a story right away to use it, and and. This, this will connect into the last question nicely, too, as far as writing, because this is um, this place is the heart of what makes a good script and what makes a good story. And a lot of times people have a good, a good device, literally, but they don't ha have the character story that goes with it. So some examples are the professor's time machine that only goes into the future, can't go backwards. This ended up being one of our best episodes. That was an idea Matt Groening suggested, but for a long time, we didn't have a story to go with it. And we kept saying, you know, you, you can't, we can't just have them get on this thing and go and see a series of things. A series of scenes, even in a cartoon, doesn't work. It has to have a theme and it has to have a beginning, a middle and an end and it has to have some human emotion. That was one of our ground rules. So we eventually came up with this story where Fry is in the time machine, Leela's left behind and, they, you know, they had finally... He had finally professed his love, and then they're separated by billions of years. So we turned it into this uh, long-distance romance <laughs> across the, the billions of years, and it ended up being one of our best episodes, I think, and one of those ones, like I was saying earlier, that has, a, I think, a really good sci-fi story and a really touching emotional story at the same time. But uh, but it, we couldn't write it until both of those things came together. But I do think I do think it often would be in the form of first the in, the physical invention stick that idea up on the board. And if somebody later comes up with a character take on it, we'll use it. Another example was um, we used in our finale episode, which was quite similar <laughs> actually uh, in its mechanism, which is uh, a little push button the professor has that rewinds time 10 seconds. So this can take you backwards in time, 10 seconds. And um, again, we had that idea for a while and ultimately the way we made it into a story was by combining it with another story that we had gotten stuck on where time froze. And uh, we had never been able to work out that story and we gave up on it. And then we, we came up with this idea, aha, um, Brian Leela are going through their life and time freezes and they're living their life and getting old while, uh, while the rest of the world is frozen. So uh, those two things had to come together sort of to make it into a story. But uh you got you got to have both. Mm -hmm. No, yeah, and I love to the the finale and that push button that rewinds time ten seconds, and Fry ends up falling off a building <laughs> and can't uh, can't <laughs> rewind time enough. Uh, the an, an interesting thing I think about time travel particularly is that it's very good for 
emotional stories. It really, they, they really go together nicely. Um, and even this time travel of 10 seconds uh, works for that because there are these things, these concepts in life of, oh, if only I could do that again, if only I could have that one second back in my life, how would my life be different? And so, so that little 10 second time travel really lets you play into these key moments in people's lives and what would you have done differently? And by the same token or a similar token, I have quite a few tokens here. <laughs> um, the long distance time travel lets you do this thing where, oh, you're separated from the people, you're the person you love or you're from your parents. Even the whole setup of the show is Fry is a thousand years ahead of his family and people he'll never see again. So uh, the one way nature of time is so connected to the joy and tragedy of real life that it's just, it's great for emotional stories. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so we mentioned that that was the series finale, but it was actually kind of the fourth series finale that you guys have done. <laughs> yes. Um, and I mean, this is something I think is really frustrating for science fiction fans is that you can have a show that's just massively popular among science fiction fans, you know, like Futurama or the original Star Trek, Firefly, Farscape, etc. And it gets canceled. Um, could you just say from your perspective as a TV show creator, why is it so hard for science fiction shows to stay on the air, uh, even when they're super popular among fans? Yeah, I mean, for live action shows, there's the issue of the budget, of course, uh, and that I think impacted the original Star Trek a lot and forced them to do all their Western episodes and everything uh, with existing sets. So um, you have this problem of, well, if you're just getting the sci-fi fan base, I mentioned before, it's a very dedicated fan base, but at least in those days, not necessarily enough to keep a network show on the air. And you combine that with high budgets for live action shows, it's a it's a bad combination. For a cartoon, you would think we'd have it a little easier. Um, animated shows are often a little more expensive at the very beginning and then a little less expensive later on uh, as the years go on. There's a lot of startup costs and there's many, many employees animating, but later on, you usually don't end up with the actors making $400,000 an episode or whatever, The Simpsons being a notable exception. Um, so with the cartoon, you have a little more of a shot, I guess, but at the same time, you have the difficulties of a cartoon, which is, are people going to buy into this world? And particularly, are adults going to buy into this world? And uh, that's always... That's always tricky. So yeah, we in Futurama we always in, ended up with this audience that was exactly on the on the cutoff point between is it is the network going to keep it on the air or not? And we were in suspense every year. Are we going to get picked up? We never knew. So we ended up writing what we thought at the time was going to be our finale episode four times. It became sort of a, a in joke that we would always have Ken Keeler, who I mentioned before, write the last episode so he became our last episode specialist <laughs> he wrote all four all four times he wrote them and you know when you when you start to get a lot of experience writing your last episode ever you know something's gone horribly wrong <laughs> at that point it's funny you know um when farscape was canceled there was you know like well, uh, most of these shows when when they get canceled there's a fan campaign to try to save them and when farscape was canceled i saw somebody say that by the time the show actually gets canceled, or by the time you as a fan hear about that, it's too late. That really, if you care about a show, a science fiction show, you should be organizing a campaign, essentially, before you hear that it's canceled, because you should just assume it's going to get canceled. Um, mm -hmm. What do you think about that as, uh, you know, from the point of view of a showrunner? Uh, I think that's basically true. You know, the with animation, again, it's more true, because when they cancel the show, this machine shuts down and it, and by the time they start it up, it's going to take another year to get your first show in the air, unless you're South Park, then it takes six days. Like <laughs> but if you're the Simpsons or Futurama, it takes a year. So uh, it's very hard to shut down and start up this big machine. So definitely uh, uh, fan action sooner <laughs> rather than later. So you can keep the machine going would make sense. Uh, that said, there's the second question of what can the fans do that actually influences networks. Um, and ultimately what it comes down to usually is are people watching the show or people buying the DVDs or downloading the, the video and um, these fan campaigns to some degree end up being publicity and the fans themselves 
get fired up and go, go, you know, we're going to watch the show. We're going to support it. And the ratings go up and the sales go up and that's what the network notices. So, um, it has, you, you usually have to get both of those things and rare cases you get the network president saying, I'm a fan of that show. And if the fans like it, I'm going to stand up for it. But, uh, that's sort of the rarer case. It's it, in the, in the case of family guy and Futurama, it was definitely not that, you know, the network had actively banished us to reruns on cable TV at, and, uh, both the shows were running on Adult Swim on Cartoon Network in the middle of the night back in the mid 2000s. And the ratings started going up and even uh, in the younger demographics were beating the late night talk shows and things. And Fox was very surprised by this. And part of it was just that the shows were suddenly on in a, on a regular schedule. They were on in the middle of the night, but they were on every night, whereas they had both been on Sundays and being overrun by football games uh, on Fox, if anybody remembers that when they were first on. So, uh, so, so ultimately it was the, the practical matters of the viewership and the CD, uh, sorry, and the DVD sales stayed high at that time. And, uh, that in turn, I think is, is definitely helped by these fan campaigns and people bringing publicity to the show. So, uh, the fans save it through some combination of, of the protests and actually watching the show. Mm. So if people want more Futurama, they should, by the DVDs, basically. Yeah, and at this point, you know, we the fans don't owe us anymore at this point. Our fans have helped us more than the fans of almost any other show. I cannot thank our fans enough. I mean, we have literally come back, as I said, four times. That Four times we wrote our last episode, so three times we've come back. Um, once in the form of the DVD movies, then again in the form of Comedy Central, and again in the form of their Comedy Central second order. So our fans don't owe us anything. In fact, I I feel like I owe all of our <laughs> fans a free DVD. <laughs> um, but if they want to buy it, they should, of course, do that. But um, but thanks to them, we did have ultimately a long run that I I feel very proud of, and I feel I feel like we got to do a lot of the things we wanted to do. Whereas when we were canceled the first time, I felt like oh, we're kind of cut off just when we're getting to to understand what we're doing here and just getting good at it. Now I feel like, oh, of course we could do more. It's an infinite universe, but it's a it feels like a real body of work. And so, uh, yeah, our fans definitely gave us the chance to to make it into that with the two or three returns to life. Mm. Well, do you want to talk about the Simpsons Futurama crossover that's coming up? Yeah, that this was very exciting. Um, also falls into the category of coming back to life, but in a new form, more of a reincarnation. Um, the, the origin of the Simpsorama episode that's going to be on this fall is that uh, Futurama was canceled. We all went about our lives. And then Al Jean, Simpsons head writer, called me up one day and said, hey, what do you think about the idea for a Simpsons Futurama crossover? Now, it sounded great to me, but I was immediately very nervous about this because there there's a long history of crossover tension on the Simpsons dating back to about 20 years ago when there was a Simpsons critic crossover. And if, if people remember the animated show, the critic uh, starring John Lovitz and created by Simpsons writers, Al Jean and Mike Reese, that was produced by Gracie films. It also produces the Simpsons and they did a crossover episode and Matt Groening was very opposed to it. He felt like these, the, design styles of the two shows were completely different and it would take away from the reality of the show and he didn't see how they could go together. So he, he was very opposed to that, but it sort of got uh, pushed through against his objection. So cut back to the present, Al Jean asked me, what do I think of this crossover idea? And I said, whatever Matt thinks, that's what I think. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had an uneasy feeling, but as it turns out, Matt was perfectly on board because since he drew all the characters, he thought that these styles could go together and wouldn't be a problem. And he probably felt a little sorry for Futurama mm -hmm. at that time. So, um, so it went forward. And I suggested maybe that he, that uh, Al could have Stuart Burns write the episode. Stuart was a longtime writer on Futurama before he went over to The Simpsons. He's been there a long time, so he's super qualified to write the episode. And I got to weigh in with. Uh, suggestions at the early stage at the outline and uh again recently with just a rough cut of the show that i saw so i am a little bit involved but not not super involved but a little bit involved and it's very good 
uh, it's very exciting for me to see these two things together, uh, which I would not have expected a few years ago. And the other great thing about it is that they worked really hard to get a lot of the Futurama cast in their CLC, really all of the major Futurama characters and a bunch of obscure minor characters in there, such as Hedonism Bot, popular favorite. <laughs> um, so, uh, so it's really good and it's got a little bit of, uh, sci-fi in there as well. So it's, it's officially a Simpsons episode, but it's a little bit more Futurama in its tone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so okay, so in Futurama you ha- you present this whole world of the future and you've done all these episodes. Is there anything that you guys came up with for the show or that you just used in the show that you think might actually come true in the future? Uh hmm. The uh there's a few advertising things that I ca- I could imagine could come true such as advertising in your dreams. Mm-hmm. That seems like we might might be getting close to that. <laughs> um and projecting advertisements on the moon, that seems more likely. In fact, there was somebody threatened to do that recently, and uh, people were very up in arms, and it turned out to be a public. <laughs> so <laughs> so that, was, that was pretty close. Uh, hmm. There's, you know, there, a few of the things keep threatening, but I don't think are going to have actually happen. We have the, the tube transport system, for example, that shoots people around in clear tubes. And, of course, Elon Musk proposed the same couple years ago but uh i i don't think i i don't actually think any of these things are going to happen in our lifetime that we're talking about but uh they're a little closer they could be that that could be done let me put it that way if we put our uh national resources behind it (laughs) we'll hope for that well how about how about on the social side i mean i was just i rewatched all your episodes last night and and there's the line um uh, professor farnsworth has about you know we've abandoned your primitive notions of uh decency or something and he's naked for most of the episode is there anything <laughs> along those lines you think uh might happen will we all become nudists in the future you know did you notice when, when futurama went on to comedy central we had a lot more nudism <laughs> <laughs> it was like the very first dvd movie which was aired on comedy central so they go to the nudist home world <laughs> and, and we had the, the uh the head evil alien was named nudar so the looser uh Broadcast standards of Comedy Central came into play there. Uh, I'm a nudist now. <laughs> no, uh, this luckily this is an audio interview. <laughs> um, I don't have any st- strong feelings about nudism, honestly. <laughs> so. Or even, I mean, even stuff like um, you know, it's kind of played for laughs. But the idea that when you reach a sufficiently advanced age and you're not in good health anymore, you, that you might just plug yourself into a virtual reality environment and live there for the rest of your existence. I mean, that seems to me like something that could happen. You know, I've tried out the uh, Oculus Rift, I'm proud to say. Um, and uh, I do think that would be a good idea. The, uh, uh, for people who have mobility problems, you could actually put on the uh, headset and go visit places, uh, even in real time, for example. So I think that's a fantastic idea. I, I'm all for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask you earlier, I d- earlier, I didn't get a chance, but you mentioned reading Stanislav Lem, and I was just curious if you had read his book, The Siberiad, because that seems to have a strong uh, Futurama vibe to me. I believe I did read it back in high school days, but honestly, I, I my memory is very poor, <laughs> and I, I don't... I, it, uh, I, yeah, I don't remember the details. Okay, well, there, there's just one thing I really think that you should check out because um, okay. it's about these two robots who are inventors and they're always trying to out-invent right, each right, other. Right, 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 right. Yes, I certainly read it. Okay, yes. and, and there's a part where one of them invents a poetry writing machine and then the other one is trying to break the machine by giving it impossible tasks, impossible <laughs> poems to write. And so he says, write a love poem about tensor calculus. And <sighs> the machine does it. And it's actually, you know, the... The poem is actually in the book, and it's it's hilarious, and it's really well done. So I think. And you think about this, and and this, you're reading it in translation, also, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, Michael Kandel actually translated it from Polish, so I don't know what kind of changes. I assume he had to basically write something completely different because I don't see how you could possibly translate something like yeah, that. Yeah, there's so much wordplay in those stories, and I always wondered, like, what am I losing yeah. from, <laughs> from the original? I certainly did read it, yes, and I'm sure I subconsciously stole whatever <laughs> you're reminding me of now so maybe i better not look at it <laughs> all right cool um <laughs> all right so yeah so then just finally um what are you up to these days or are there any other projects or anything else you want to mention 
I'm I'm uh, at the stage right now of writing down all of my I call them my three a.m. ideas, <laughs> which uh, they, there's about uh, one good one out of every eighty. But I'm up to around eighty right now. So yeah, I think I think I have a couple good ones in there actually. But uh, uh, they're at the top secret stage. But uh, I'm about to get off my butt. I do have a couple of good ideas. I have a couple of ideas for screenplays, in fact, uh, which I, I have never tried. So I may uh, I may move in that direction a little bit. Mm. So if people want to keep up with you, do you have a, you're not on Twitter or do you have a website or? Anything? No, I don't do any of that stuff, which is pretty embarrassing for a computer science guy, <laughs> I guess. But probably, I guess once I actually start doing something, I will start promoting it more. But uh, I mean, the main reason I haven't bothered too much is because Comedy Central has been running the Futurama Facebook page for years now, which has 25 million followers or something like that. So, you know, whenever we wanted to do stuff for Futurama, it would just go right on there. So um, it didn't seem too necessary for, for me to add something in for 108 more people. But uh, but uh, yeah, we may need, may need to branch out soon. So, I mean, if people keep their eye on the Futurama Facebook page, will that keep them up to date on you? Or Yeah, probably. They would, they're reasonably nice to me. If I start something new, they'll probably uh, throw the good word my way. <laughs> All right, great. Well, yeah, so... Um... Yeah, I'm really looking forward to whatever you work on next. I was a big Futurama fan from the very beginning, and I'm really excited that I got a chance to talk to you. Likewise. Thank you very much. And and again, I'm super honored to be uh, among the guests of this show, many of whom are heroes and and uh, my, and people who have inspired me. Oh, great. Um, all right, cool. So, yes, yeah, so we've been speaking with David X. Cohen. Um, so, David, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you again. It was really fun. And that was our interview. So thanks again to David X. Cohen for being our guest today. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including Sean Conway and Director Dave in the U.S., and Jasadju in Ireland. And of course, a very special thank you to all of our crowdfunders, including our newest crowdfunder, Joanna Evans, crowdfunder number 88, who also just became the latest listener to be making monthly contributions to the show. Longtime listener Leonid Levchenko, crowdfunder number 61, also just signed up as one of our monthly crowdfunders. This episode was also made possible thanks to support from listeners such as Abigail Drake, David Anderson, Wes Weathersby, Nick Suffolk, Jason Lind, Laura Dirks, Zoe Kim, George Turcotte, Jeff Gass, and Carl Watson. So thanks, guys. We really appreciate it. To learn more, visit us at geeksguideshow.com and click on crowdfunding. And now it's time to announce the winners of our free book giveaway. Five lucky listeners were selected at random to receive a free copy of Tobias Bakel's new near-future eco-thriller Hurricane Fever, a sequel to his 2012 novel Arctic Rising. And the winners are Gene S., John Massa, Leonid Levchenko, Jeff Wickstrom, and Andrew Winters. So congratulations to the winners, and big thanks to everyone who entered. Winners, please send your mailing address to geeksgalaxy at gmail.com and we'll mail you the books. Thanks. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.